Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after student protests and discussions between Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board and the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, the Black Youth Mentorship Program is a go once again at Bernie Custis Secondary School. We'll tell you why. Free menstrual products soon to be available in Hamilton schools and rec centers. Pilot program has been given the go-ahead by city council. And the COVID-19 cases keep rising daily around the world. Countries are stepping up their response to the virus and how to prepare for it. We'll tell you why. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with on the program today, after student protests and discussions between the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board and the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, the Black Youth Mentorship Program is going to go ahead at Bernie Custis Secondary School. Uh, there was some concern about that just a couple of weeks ago because of a decision the board made at that time. Joining us to talk about uh, the good news here is uh, Kojo Dempty, who is the manager of programs with the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. Uh, Kojo, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today. Thank you. Good morning. Kojo, how did this uh, turn of events happen here, the, the, the change of, of ideas here, and, and to actually put this program back on track? Yeah, so I think uh, we had robust discussions with uh, with. Uh, Danny, uh, I mean Manny, uh, at the uh, at the board, the director of education, um, and and the chair of the board, we 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 had some good discussion about uh, the importance of uh, a program like this, what it means to the youth. Uh, so, um, going through those discussions, we came to a to a to a place of understanding to uh, review the program. Uh, come out with uh, further uh, detailed terms of a memorandum of understanding. And so uh, we're happy that the program is uh, back on track. So yesterday, Bernie had a session with uh, Desmond Cole and Andrea Vasquez. And uh, next month, uh, we'll have another session at McNabb Secondary School. Well, uh, credit to the board for moving ahead with this and for co- and for engaging with this. I know we talked to them at the time that they made the decision, and I, I, it was a bit of a head-scratcher for me, and I guess for a lot of people, uh, because the, the excuse or the reasoning we heard at that time, of course, uh, Kojo, was uh, they were concerned about a report that you uh, had released, that being the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, uh, with some uh, rather pointed comments from some of the students concerned about racism and about, uh, the, 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 I guess, the atmosphere that was going on in Hamilton High Schools. And, and I looked at that report, actually, as justification why the program was so necessary. Uh, yes, so uh, those were a number of things that we discussed when we when we met uh, twice during the month of, of, of February. So I think those are continual discussions. Um, we 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 came to an understanding that uh, HCCI has an advocacy role in general. Um, as uh, the mandate of our organization is to address racism in Hamilton, uh, so there's that, and then there's us also supporting a program within the school board. So I think we've come to an, an understanding of what those two different roles mean and how it impacts uh, the board and ourselves. So we've come up with a framework to uh, have continued communication and accountability frameworks so that uh, uh, everyone understands exactly what's going on. Could you maybe for our listeners' sake, Kojo, explain exactly what this, uh, this program at Bernie Custis is going to be, how it's going to be run? Yeah, so uh, for your listeners, this is the second year that the program is uh, has been in existence. It was first at Sir John A. McDonald, and then uh, when the school was closed, uh, we started it up at Bernie. So basically, we run monthly sessions with black youth in the in the school, and we talk about different uh, 
different topics that are supposed to give them soft skills and career skills and leadership skills uh, so that they can navigate the school system and also in society in general, especially as it relates to uh, uh, racism and other forms of oppression that they might face throughout their, their life. Is, is there an opportunity during these courses and during these sessions for the students themselves to, to voice their opinions and their feelings about, about their life experiences? Exactly, and that's what it's meant to do, because I think uh, uh, currently the curriculum doesn't allow for that, right? So uh, there are certain things that black students go through that uh, teachers may not be uh, uh, may not be accustomed to, may not understand. So uh, by having these monthly sessions, it gives us an opportunity to hear from them, to listen to uh, uh, folks that are doing work in the community and 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 uh, professionally as well, so that they can see themselves and understand where they fit moving forward, uh, whether it's post-secondary education or in the trades or or whatever uh, path path they 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 think uh, they want to take. You know, this is interesting, and, and, and as you explain this, I mean, it seems to me as if this could actually serve as, as, as a template for, for other uh, uh, groups that are they're feeling the same sort of isolation, and I think that's probably a very apt word in situations like this, is if uh, the, the mainstream curriculum or the environment in, in a learning environment like this is, is, is passing them by. Uh, the opportunity to have that dialogue and, and, and to be able to talk freely about their own feelings and their own experiences. It's, it's not only cathartic, but I think it really helps everybody involved, including, I would think, the staff. Yes, exactly. And I think that that's the purpose of the program. And uh, we, based on the discussions that we've had now, um, I think uh, the board has come to an understanding of what a program like that means. Uh, and then we are also talking about the limitations of the program. So I think that uh, the continual discussion has given us an opportunity to kind of look at the program, see where, see where it fits in the best interest of, of, of black youth. And also, I would like to mention, too, that, you know, I think uh, this is also a display of, uh, of, of the youth leadership, right? So when we talk about leadership, it, it comes in different forms and in different ways. So when they were able to organize over 300 students uh, uh, to, to uh, talk about a program that they, they think is beneficial to them, I think that's a good form of uh, leadership uh, and, and civic engagement and also a critical form of education, right? Uh, education is supposed to give our youth uh, uh, critical consciousness so that they can ask and do the things that they want to see in their lives. Well, it's, it's an extension, I think, of what we'd like to see our education system actually be. It's not just about reading and writing. Uh, it's about life experience. And as you say, shaping uh, people to, you know, to, to accept uh, what has to be done. And, and, and you know, that it's, it's so important to have that. And sometimes I guess it's going to be difficult as people are trying to develop curricula for school systems to understand that that's got to be part of that education process. Yes, and uh, like I said, I mean, I think the program uh, uh, is a supplement to the curriculum. We know that some of the items that the curriculum has uh, might be uh, outdated and in some cases problematic. But, um, however, I think having a program like this allows for uh, some of those um, revelations and those critical responses so that we can find a better way forward for, for youth. That's in the best interest of uh, the youth and the students that are coming uh, to school. Well, I would think this is going to empower the students, is it not? It's not just about self-esteem, but it's also about being part of the process. 
Yes, and I think uh, uh, that's active participation, that's civic participation. So now uh, they've they've become uh, uh, they've become uh, uh, leaders in their own right, which they were before. Um, and I think it's also an inspiration for other high schools. I think uh, based on what happened, there are a number of high schools now that are looking to uh, uh, create um, a space for black youth so that they can they can discuss some of the issues that they are facing. And I think this this is good for the school. This is good for Hamilton. This is good for ATCI. This is good for the province. This is good for the country, right? So I think we should laud the youth. Uh, for for organizing and doing all the work that uh, they they have done. Well, if there's one thing that I think pointed to just how much the students feel that this is a necessary part of their education process, uh, it was the fact that they organized a walkout the day that this was announced that it was going to be suspended for a period of time. Uh, it was and it was a very impassioned group that were out there. I mean, they were they were out there because they said this thing matters to us and we we don't want it taken away from us. Yes, and I and I and and I and I think that. Uh, it's a lesson for all of us, right? Like I think uh, usually uh, when something like that happens, everyone looks uh, uh, looks to themselves as, you know, maybe there's a problem. But I think central to what the, our educational system should look like is serving the best interests of youth and what empowers them, what uh, uh, provides them with the resources and tools they need to become uh, better residents and better leaders and inclusive leaders as well. It's interesting to see this is happening at Bernie Custis, but your point's well taken. Uh, I'm sure the board is going to be monitoring this, and we'll certainly reach out to, to the board, and Manny Figurado, of course, the uh, from uh, the Hamilton Board of Education, uh, to wa- ask about you know what's going to be happening in other schools. I mean, because uh, Bernie Custis is not a one-off. I mean, this is a this is a community problem, not just a, a problem for that school district. Yes, and I think uh, I'll give credit to Manny. Um, during during our discussions, uh, we've we've listened to each other. We've been critical of each other. We've been vulnerable to each other. So I think it's a continual discussion, and this is just the first step in the journey. Um, and the first step is always the, the the critical step. So I think there's more there's more steps uh, to to come, and some of the steps might you know be divergent and not straight. But again. Both, both ATCI and at least from Manny's perspective, there is commitment to ensure that black youth, racialized youth, feel safe in schools, and uh, we'll, we'll work together to, to accomplish that. Well, I guess even the meeting that you had yesterday, and, and some of the students were involved in that, uh, was forward-thinking and, and I think productive from the standpoint, too, because they got a couple of issues put on the table that probably uh, uh, previous to that had not been considered by anybody, including, I think one of them was a prayer space uh, for Muslim students uh, that that seemed to be a natural and probably was an oversight, but at the same time, now it's out there, and I'm, I'm sure the board's going to do what they can to try and make those accommodations. Exactly, and um, yeah, so I think... Again, uh, we need to center the students, we need to listen to them, we need to provide uh, uh, all the resources that, uh, that is needed uh, for them to, uh, uh, to experience uh, school in a, in, a, in a safe and inclusive manner so that when they leave uh, the school, they become better leaders and passionate uh, residents and community members as well.
This really, uh, I, I guess, checks a couple of boxes for you, too, at the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. Uh, the, maybe the biggest one of that, I, I would think, Kojo, is the fact that you're, you're able to communicate and create that, uh, that bond now with youth in the community. Because uh, and, and, obviously we've talked about workplace and community concerns about, uh, about uh, racialization and, uh, and about segregation in some cases even, and, and certainly some biases that exist. Uh, they certainly exist in the school system as well. Uh, and I, I know the board's aware of that, and they're trying to do what they can for, for issues like LGBTQ, Two Spirits, etc. Uh, but the black issue has not gone away. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a historical thing, right? Uh, these issues were, were there in the 60s and the 70s and are, and are still here. Um, but I think that uh, uh, once we have those open lines of communication, once we listen to students, once we allow for them to uh, come, out, come up with their own critical ways of engaging with systems that historically um, have marginalized them, then I think we'll, we'll, we'll be moving in, in, in a direction that suits everyone or everyone that is involved, students, an organization like ATCI, and a, and a huge institution like the board, and the broader city of Hamilton. I would think then, given this program and, and what seems to be a very successful uh, enterprise here and an initiation for this program, uh, that if you had uh, a call from other schools, other jurisdictions, or, or other schools or other boards for that matter, uh, you'd take that call. I'm sure that's something you'd like to be able to build on. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think it's, it's part of our mandate. We, we, we want to ensure that uh, youth have uh, the resources that's necessary for them to uh, continue in their in their life pathways. So yeah, we will take that call. There's other uh, logistics uh, that need to be discussed when engaging in a program like this. Uh, there's cost. There's uh, frameworks that we look at uh, in terms of uh, uh, some Afrocentric uh, ways of talking about racism, anti-racism, uh, and looking at the intersections of various identities that play. Um, into some of these uh, forms of oppression that we see in schools and in the general um, ge- uh, general society. Well, it's a, it's a happy ending, I guess, to a, a very controversial story when the board decided to suspend the program for a period of time. But everything seems to be back on schedule, and uh, we're hoping that uh, this is going to be a very successful enterprise. Uh, Kojo, thanks so much for the great work that you and your organization are doing, and uh, we'll stay in touch as uh, you follow the progress of this. Okay, thank you very much. Take care. Kojo Dampy, of course, manager of programs for the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. And, and by the way, yeah, a hat, uh, tip to the, uh, to the Hamilton Board of Education as well. I know that uh, we had talked with them at the time of their announcement uh, that they were going to suspend the program for a period of time, and uh, there was a great deal of consternation, as you might have expected. But uh, Manny Figueroa, of course, uh, from the board, uh, was on our program and talked about that, and uh, he was pretty clear that this was not... To, to stop the program. They just wanted to step back for a little bit and have some dialogue because there were some cons- concerns raised about that report that we talked about. But the report, in essence, was uh, really some uh, some heartfelt concerns and comments and, and very candid comments from some of the students about what they were experiencing in a day-to-day life in some of the high schools, especially at Bertie Custis. And uh, obviously, that's the kind of information you want to take to heart when you're de- developing something like this. So good for them, uh, good for the folks at Bernie Custis and the students there uh, that really wanted to make this thing work. And we'll certainly watch and see how that program progresses. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. City Council had a debate. Uh, well, we've talked about some of the issues, of course, uh, including the you know the rental of of the house to, to the Cardis Group, and that was kind of, you know, very controversial, and a couple of other things. And they talked about the Commonwealth bid. 
But they also talked about a pilot program that had been approached by a couple of different counselors at this stage uh, about putting feminine hygiene products in uh, some rec centers and uh, and certainly in uh, food banks. It, this is a one-year pilot project to just see what kind of an uptake they're going to get on this. Uh, and it got some pushback from some of the counselors, which, which surprised an awful lot of people and surprised some of the counselors as well. Uh, I, I guess they just don't understand that this is uh, this is a necessity. This is feminine hygiene products is not a, an accessory. It's not a, a perk. But that seemed to be lost on a few of the counselors. I want to bring Joanne Santucci into the uh, discussion here from a Hamilton food chair, of course. Uh, Joanne, first of all, thanks for jumping in on here. appreciate you. Oh, my pleasure, Bill. You and I talked about this just a couple of days ago when oh, we were talking yeah. about the program. City Council that very day started to debate this. What the hell are they debating? I mean, did they not understand what this is all about? I don't know. You know, that the floodgate line is getting a lot of press, you know, but, you know, Terry's entitled to his opinion. He's a counselor. He's entitled to that opinion. But, you know, the pushback was just as hard. We can certainly say, you know, that's his opinion. We can agree to disagree. I don't know where that strategy gets you of don't do anything, be totally afraid, and nothing happens. I don't understand that. And I know he was talking about risk. But there were some false narratives also put into the mix in that conversation that uh, the emergency food system has tons of this product. That is simply not true. If Terry had seen that on the shelf, I've been told by agencies that that shelf would have probably been emptied by the end of the day. Most of this product comes in through donations. Uh, they're not, they don't have budgets to spend on any of these things. So if there was product there, wonderful. It was wonderful to see. I, I'm glad you'd even hear about it. Uh, but for most of our agencies, it's a product that they would love to put into this system and help the city actually access the poorest of households, um, you know, that product. It is a health issue, too. It's not a, uh, a nice-to-have. It's an actually basic need. You know what I mean? So you're right, Bill. If you consider toilet paper, you know, a nice to have and not a basic need, I think you'd rethink that once you're in the washroom. (laughs) I mean, so some of the, there's 5,000 households that the poor struggling for basics of needs in this city. They're struggling to put food on the table, shelter, their health problems are escalating. Every day, parents in this community go without as costs start to rise. One more sacrifice is always happening in these households. Well, this is one that shouldn't happen. It's a need. This city has been famous for coming to the needs of people, especially people who are struggling in this community. And I'm proud to be part of this project, and I cannot wait to come back to council and talk about the unbelievable deep impact it has had in our community. Well, and uh, and hopefully this is going to be a positive impact. I should, by the way, uh, spoiler alert here, they eventually did pass this thing. Uh, so there, there's going to be. But the fact that there was some, some acrimonious discussion and debate about this, and uh, you referenced uh, Councillor Whitehead's uh, whoring issue and, and uh, opening the floodgates. And I, I, I in context, I think he was talking about, well, what else are we going to put offer in here, which is ludicrous. I mean, that, that, that's not the argument at all. This is a necessity, uh, and I, I, I give the councillors credit. It was Councillor Marula that brought this up, Councillor Wilson, Councillor Nan, and others have talked about this in the past. Uh, but this concept that, well, if you put it up there, people are just going to take them all and walk away. Uh, seems to me to be ludicrous. Uh, it's the same sort of thing you hear. I remember the debate we had years ago, putting condoms in, in washrooms in some of the high schools. It, and, and the argument against it was, well, it's going to encourage those, those, those kids to want to have sex. No, it's not. But we realize that some of them do, and they want to make sure that that stuff is available to them. This is not a decision for women to, to be able to, to use feminine hygiene products. It's a necessity. All of those counselors who pushed back against that, uh, you know, 
thought process were really outstanding. They were so eloquent. I also have to take my hat off to Paul Johnson, who so eloquently spoke about the city, who helps all kinds of people with health issues. This is who we are. This is what we do. And while this might be a new initiative, it's not new to the city of Hamilton to come to the need of people, you know, in our community. It really it isn't. You know, uh, we reached out to Hamilton or to the city because we knew they wanted to, to figure out a way to interface with the poorest of households. So we, we offered uh, our system in order to do that. So they, they, they did split the, uh, the motion up into two pieces, what would go on in the city facilities and how the food banks would uh, disseminate it too. So what you're speaking about is their uh, dissemination of that product in their facilities. Yeah, which I think is to, to, to even separate that and, and to suggest that, okay, that way I can vote against it, I think is ludicrous. I mean, one of the other councillors suggested that, well, not everybody that goes into a rec center is, is going to need these. Well, of course not. But even if one person does and actually has a need for it, they should be there for them. I mean, that it makes sense. I mean, the, the indication here is that, well, one person's probably going to go in there and ten, take them all. I think one suggested put them in their purse and do whatever. Uh, what, what is there a black market for feminine hygiene products? Is that what we're ins- insinuating here? Well, as Councilman Marilla also pointed out, nobody's hoarding toilet paper in those washrooms. You, know? <laughs> you don't see people walking out with lots of toilet paper under their arms, under their coat, you know. Uh, like you, we, what you have to do is initiate the pilot and adjust as you go. See how it's going, you know what I mean? And the city's going to have to figure out their procedure. We'll be running ours past the city as well um, uh, when we get up and running. So um, I, I'm just really thrilled that... Uh, so many of the counselors, like there's one counselor who disagreed, and he has every right to stand up and say how he feels. You know what I mean? But there were so many that said, uh, you know, it's not right. What we're thinking is old school. We've got to think forward. We've got to understand that there are, are different people, different needs, different things going on in our community. And that uh, being a, uh, a vibrant community is being able to respond to those urgent needs. Well, and if you don't have a, a, a complete grasp of the situation, don't don't say anything. Okay, just you know, do some some self education here. I know when this was first brought up by uh, a couple of the counselors, this is probably a month or so ago now. Uh, there were some counselors that felt uneasy about having a public discussion about this. This is this is not dirty. I mean, this is this is this is this is life. I mean, this is natural. Uh, and and I'm glad. I, I, at the time, I think I expressed my opinion that I thought I was I was appreciative of the council had the foresight and the and the vision to have an open discussion about something like this. Well, and maybe I think I, I'll thank Terry Whitehead for having everybody so um, you know aghast that nobody's thinking that this as a health problem. Nobody's thinking this as as a need that needs to go out there. Not a nice to have. So the conversation was robust, but it needed to happen, and it needs to be happening out in the open, out of the dark. You know what I mean? This is like you know. What year is it for crying out loud? We should be able to talk about these things and we should be able to, you know, put in place mechanisms that actually diminish that hardship for people. There's a the need here is, is obvious. I mean, it, it, but the other concern here is the fact that they're there. I mean, nobody's going to go up and say, hey, you know, does anybody have any feminine hygiene products? The fact they, they supplied there, uh, you know, if people don't need them, they're not going to take them. Uh, they're there for people who need them. Uh, and, and you and I had this discussion just a couple of days ago about what you're going to be doing with Hamilton Food Share, uh, which I think is an excellent idea and a very companion, a good companion piece to what's happening here. Uh, where are you with that now, Joanna? Where's the, where's the program? Well, first we did the research, then we did all of the numbers, and then we submitted a, uh, um, you know, a, crest, a request to assist the city. So now that we know it's passed, we'll be going all of our policies and procedures, how to disseminate it. We'll be tracking it every month. 
We'll also be doing surveys throughout the year. This is our plan to come back with uh, city councillors, not just about the numbers and access, but how it actually affected people and the agencies themselves. So we'll have a real robust report at year end from every point of view you can think of. And uh, hopefully it will it will really show the deep, deep impact that it's had for, for people you know, well, in this community. Yeah, and, and it's, it's I think, the natural extension of what you're doing with, uh, with the food bank itself and, and the great work that you have to do within the community uh, and serving those people. I mean, let's face it, by definition, uh, the people that access food banks are... are, are people that need help. I mean, they need assistance. They they can't afford to buy groceries and pay the rent or pay the utility bills or whatever the case might be. It might just be short term, but I mean, that particular month, there is a need and they're going to access that. Well, it's not just food that you need. I mean, you've talked about hygiene products, feminine hygiene products, but other other products as well, That uh, things like laundry detergent, deodorant, uh, hand cream, all these sorts of things that we, I guess a lot of us anyway, simply take for granted. Well, if you're in dire financial circumstances, you're not buying that stuff. That does, but you still need them. You still have to wash your clothes. You still have to use the washroom from time to time, I would think. But uh, if you can't access those products, you're in big trouble. So it, it makes all kinds of sense, I think, for for you at FoodShare to, to ask for these donations so that we can make the, those available to those people that are using the food bank. You know, personal hygiene products are very needed at the food banks. And over the course of the last couple of years or so, People have been putting that on their list of, you know, what does a food bank need? So we have been getting some of it in, not in huge droves, but it is coming in. You know what I mean? So maybe we can put this on and we're, we're really looking for sponsors and champions of this uh, pilot as well as moving forward. The city is really, really forward thinking and let's do a pilot. Let's see what the understanding is. Let's see what the access is. Let's see what that impact is before we go further. So I really got to take my hat off to them because the research is there. You know, this health issue, you know, for many younger people in school, if, if this happens to they menstruate during school and they don't have products, they're not going to school. It affects their, you know, it affects their education. Some people may not go to work because of it. It goes on and on and on. There are many spinoffs if you don't have this kind of product. Other things can unravel quickly. You know what I mean? And also people who are using not hygiene products, you know what I mean? So they're, they're also at risk of other uh, medical problems because of it. We have heard stories from public health nurses that, uh, that describe exactly what you've just mentioned there about uh, you know, young girls that maybe don't have access to these sorts of products and they're using those god-awful paper towels that are available in washrooms to dry your hands off or, or newspapers even in situations yeah. like that. Uh, it's first of all uncomfortable, it's not effective, and more importantly, it's also a health issue because I, uh, it, it, that could lead to infection in many cases. And so this is, this is a, as much a health issue as it is a, a hygiene issue. I think that those two actually are, are very, very much t- connected. They really are. They're, 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 they're the, the opposite sides of the same coin, really. So when we talk about basic hygiene, you know, it is the first thing that they throw out because they, they can't afford a $6 shampoo or a $2 or whatever, you know, bar of soap. So uh, we've been really, uh, really grateful for donors across the system donating to the food banks these kinds of products. We'll continue to ask for them. But this is really one that has a risk attached to it far greater than just not having it, as we just spoke about. Exactly. Well, yours is going to be up and running. And again, I, I can share your uh, your appreciation for Paul Johnson, who who gets it. I mean, he's been involved in, in community services in this city for a long, long time, and Absolutely. has brought that expertise and that passion uh, as long as he's been with the city now, too. Uh, and that's the sort of thing I hope kind of permeates the council chambers. And I mean, each and every person around that horseshoe, as much as the staff members in this. I mean, there's got to be a greater appreciation of who they are representing. 
And this is not just a downtown issue. This is a, an issue right across the city, uh, whether it's, you know, Glenbrook or Ancaster or the north end of Hamilton or, the, or you know, Westdale, whatever the case might be. Uh, everybody here benefits from pro- these kind of programs. I mean, that's what community is all about, and that's what city council is supposed to be about, is looking after the needs of the constituents. And those needs change. You know, 20 years ago, Joanne, you and I were not, we were yeah. barely talking about food banks. Oh, yeah. You know, because, oh, my God, you know, the, we, it was, it was a, a relatively new phenomenon. And, and now, all of a sudden, they are sadly more and more necessary than ever before simply because of some of the things that are happening in governments, and without pointing fingers, but, I mean, that's the reality. Uh, governments are giving less, and people are in a more dire set of circumstances these days. Uh, we, as a community, have to reach out to those people, and, and that's why I'm glad that you've taken the initiative. And uh, it looks like city council is going to do the same sort of thing. So keep the doing what you're doing. Bill. Bill, the story of the day isn't really about the couple of naysayers. It's really about how council came together. They pushed back on it, said it was important, and they're moving ahead with it. We're moving forward. We're looking so forward to the year end just to bring back, you know, to council the impact of their their actions today. I think it's going to be an amazing uh, report. Uh, We look forward to gathering that data and uh, sending it along. So today, really, the story is celebrating that most of cancel gets it that there's a lot of support and hey that march padness we're counting on that bill Come you betcha you betcha everybody's doing their part we're getting calls from everybody do you need this do you need that so the well the, the the topic matter was tough and while there was some who didn't agree it was a robust discussion it brought about you know change for us and for the people we serve so we can't really you know look at it as a negative we're moving forward and we're very happy about it absolutely well let's stay in touch and as this program uh, develops and we'll stay in touch with the progress on it too joanne Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Joanne Santucci, of course, from my Hamilton Food Chair, uh, which, by the way, if you're relatively new to the community, that is the uh, distribution center for, for the food banks. I mean, make your donation. If you don't know which food bank to go to uh, to make your donation, uh, just give it to Food Chair. They'll make sure that it gets to the appropriate place. Uh, and she did mention the program that we're going to be doing. And actually, we started it early. Uh, we did this last year. It's called March Padness. And it's about personal care and feminine hygiene products. Uh, and we're doing this with Hamilton Food Share, of course, and, and our sister station, uh, Y108 and Energy 95.3 are both in on this as well. Uh, you can drop your donation off right here at the radio station at uh, 875 Main Street West at Main and Longwood. We're right across from Westdale Collegiate. And we're looking for just what we were talking about, hygiene products, uh, sanitary pads, of course, diapers, tampons, uh, shampoo, conditioner, soap, a liquid or bar soap, by the way, laundry detergent that we talked about, things like deodorant, hand cream, you get the idea, right? Even toothpaste and uh, anything like that. And drop it off here. We'll make sure that it gets to Hamilton Food Share and make, of course, Joanne and her staff will make sure that it becomes available for the people that are accessing food banks uh, because it's, it's needed. That's all there is to it. By the way, it was an overwhelming success when we did this last year. And it's yeah, it's a takeoff on March Madness. We get that, but uh, I forget who came up with the title here. But I think they got the rest of the day off because it's kind of cute the way they came up with it, and it gets the message across. Uh, and I know it's uh, still a couple of days to go till March, but we've already started the program, and we look for your participation, just as you have done with our CHML Children's Fund and just what you do, of course, every December with our CHML Christmas Tree of Hope. It's one of the great things about being a part of this community is the way that this community cares about each other and the way that they give. And we're looking for you to do that again with this March Padness program. Personal care, feminine hygiene products, uh, and, and let's stock the food banks for the people that need these sorts of things and give them access to this. By the way, uh, we always talk about the personal donations because that's the foundation, that's the bedrock of what we do with the Children's Fund and, of course, with this program, with the March Padness program as well. But uh, for the the businesses that are out there and even the corporations that are out there that would like to help out, 
because uh, we've seen that happen before when we put the call out for some emergency uh, donations to things like food banks or, or some of the great resource centers here for people that are, are in need of, of assistance. Uh, every now and then we'll, we'll hear from one of the, the, the grocery chains or one of the other businesses that'll drop off a couple of cases of the stuff. And hey, that's great. So if you've got the, 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 the ability to do that and the initiative to do that, uh, let us know at, at uh, 875 Main Street West here at the CHML at the radio center, the Chorus Radio Center here in the west end of the city, and uh, we'll make sure that those donations get to where they need to go. March Padness, you can be a part of it right here on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Worldwide concern, of course, about what's happening with the COVID-19 or coronavirus over the uh, last week or so especially. And uh, when you talk to some of the healthcare experts, as we have on this program over the last few days, you can get the sense that there is a growing concern. Uh, even a week and a half or two weeks ago, uh, they were saying, oh, it's, it's localized. They're going to try to contain it uh, within that neighborhood, of course, in China. And quarantines are in place in many parts of the world now, not just in China. And uh, we're getting updates from the World Health Organization. And uh, various governments, of course, are uh, trying to give us uh, their read on how they're dealing with this. Uh, but it is rather troubling when you see some of the numbers here, but the number of people that are being impacted by this. And it's not just an Asian situation anymore. Uh, it seems to be something that's spreading, obviously, to parts of the Middle East and to Europe. And there are cases here in North America, too. So what are we to think of this? Well, uh, we're going to talk about that over the next couple of minutes uh, with uh, the countries, including the United States and Canada, uh, stepping up, uh, I guess, protocols uh, for uh, dealing with uh, what could be happening here and what they see happening in other parts of the world. Joining us to talk, uh, first of all, about this is Dr. Rodney Rohde, who is a professor, professor and chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professionals at Texas State University. Uh, Dr. Rohde, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm just watching as uh, as you were joining us here. The World Health Organization, of course, is giving us their daily update on what's happening. And, uh, Doctor, they've said that the risk level now for uh, for the COVID-19 is now what they consider to be, quote-unquote, very high. What What does that mean? Well, that's a great question, Bill, and one of the things I'd like for you and your audience to kind of understand is what that means is it is very high, that, that it's going to be spread. I like to use the uh, phrase, viruses are going to virus. They will spread. It's not unexpected. They will amplify and spread geographically around the world. This is not uncommon. If you think about your everyday life, there are other cold viruses, there are other flu viruses, there are even measles, unfortunately, is making a comeback because of vaccine issues. So it doesn't mean that the risk is high in the sense that it's going to be, um, you know, as deadly as something like Ebola, but the risk is there for it to spread and maybe, you know, thousands and thousands of people will get infected. But we're just going to have to kind of wait and see if that case fatality rate rises. Right now in mainland China, that case fatality rate is still in the 2 to 3% range, uh, which is kind of in the same range as influenza. Uh, but the actual transmission rate is not nearly as high as something like measles, which is uh, for every one person infected, you could get up to 20. With this virus, it seems to be around the two to three reproductive rate. And and the transmission is, is something that I think we need to get some clarity on here. It's it's uh, it's obviously human contact. I guess the, the stories we're hearing right now, Doctor, is this: it started obviously with animal to human, but but clearly uh, it's 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 starting to grow, and that's that's I guess really human contact. That's right, uh, Bill. I mean, a lot of the viruses that are zoonotic in nature, so those things that come from animal and jump into mankind, that is typically kind of the index or how things start the virus 
changes enough to where it can adapt to the human body as far as an infection of a host. And once it's in the human population, then it spreads from person to person. And primarily, uh, we believe right now it's spread through the respiratory route, so coughing, sneezing, things like that. But certainly, uh, viruses and even other microbial agents, uh, if you think about someone coughing or sneezing and those respiratory droplets landing on your hands or on a, a high-touch surface like a uh, elevator button or a railing or something like that, is potentially a, a fomite, a thing that someone can touch and then go up and rub their eye or their nose or something like that. So just like most of these types of agents, most respiratory agents, really good, diligent hand washing with soap and water and warm water is one of the most effective ways to protect ourselves. Uh, hand sanitizers, if you can't get to soap and water, are also good, but good old soap and water and warm water is, is one of the best ways to do that. And then, you know, just being smart about your, your health. So staying away from uh, people with respiratory illness, trying to get your vaccines updated to make sure you're in the best health, you know, and maybe not traveling to epicenters of where you know there's, you know, thousands of people infected, like going into China or something like that. So those are the best things we can do right now. What about, we're hearing stories now, Doctor, for instance, uh, just this morning we heard that a couple of the European soccer games uh, that are scheduled for this weekend will go on, but they're not allowing anybody into the stadium. Uh, they're just going to be played in front of empty stadiums because, especially in Italy, they're very concerned about the transmission of that virus right now. Are we heading down that road, too, or is that something that that's, we can see in the foreseeable future? Well, I think right now the way it looks, you know, with these kinds of situations, especially in places like Italy and China and maybe South Korea and Japan and places where those numbers are starting to kind of kind of go up with respect to numbers of cases. I wouldn't be surprised to see more people. What is, I think today Japan or yesterday said they were going to close every school in that country for the foreseeable future. I, in my professional opinion, don't know if that is the right move. It's certainly one way to try to slow down the transmission. I will tell you this as a microbiologist and virologist who's been doing this for 30 years almost. Mankind rarely controls or contains a virus. It will spread throughout the human population. It's already out. It's going to go through the population. Uh, it will take our immune systems collectively to confront it, adapt to it, and hopefully it will become you know, a, a virus in the future that's much like uh, some of the others, like influenza and, and maybe even the RSV or something like that, where it becomes just kind of a normal virus that we're kind of used to, but almost any agent that you think about kills um, a certain number of people. Influenza has already killed 16,000 or more in the U.S. since October, and, you know, and nobody shut down the country when that was going on. So I, I kind of have mixed feelings. It's certainly one way to handle it and to slow the spread. Um, I'm just worried um, more globally about when you start doing these things, you also cut off supply chains, you cut off trade, you cut off maybe getting the necessary equipment and, and supplies into countries that are struggling. So there, there has to be some balance. There has to be some planning. And I'm really hoping, um, you know, the global efforts do that with respect to kind of being very transparent. Uh, should we plan? Absolutely. Should we panic? I don't think so. I think we should be planning, putting in our emergency preparedness plans. Hopefully uh, many countries have those. But even at the local level, so even in some place like where I'm at, in Austin, Texas, 
in San Marcos, Texas. The universities, for instance, we are looking at our plans. We are making plans for what happens when we have our first cases because that probably will happen at some point. And just to kind of, you know, inform people and alleviate some of that initial uh, fear if they see those headlines and things like that. Trying to make them understand that they're surrounded by these agents every day of their life and they weren't panicking four months ago. Well, I, I think it's word association too, though, Doctor. I mean, you hear the word pandemic and uh, and maybe maybe we're just victims of, of our culture. I mean, you know, there have been Absolutely. movies made about this sort of thing. We've seen the, the, the death and destruction and people walking around in hazmat suits and figuring, my God, that's where we're heading. And, and, and that scares a lot of us. It really does, Bill. And that's actually, there's a there's a word for that. I did it during my PhD, and others others before me have studied this. It's called social representation theory, and that's a big old mouthful. <laughs> but what that is 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 how people kind of uh, take scientific words and meanings and phrases and try to put that into their own language, and that can sometimes mean uh, words like pandemic or outbreak can become more of a um, an internalized fear kind of word. It's a trigger for people's emotion and fear. It can also be used to stigmatize an entire people. So like the Spanish flu, or when we first started worrying about this and we were talking about the Wuhan pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And we really have tried to get better about thinking about that so that you don't stigmatize an entire population. It's nobody's fault, Bill. I mean, viruses do what they do. They don't care what you look like. They don't care what color you are. They don't care what ethnicity or culture or how much money you have or if you're a, a conservative or or are liberal, they will spread through the population. All they care about is infecting, reproducing, and moving on. And that's that's the end game, is that we'll just have to kind of adapt as we go through it. And hopefully with enough information and collaboration and transparency, we can try to limit some of that panic and, and fear. Will it be there? Certainly. So, how, how do we deal with that that aspect of it then, and to try to to placate people and, and some of the the, the, the uh, I guess angst that that's happening right now? Because I mean, that's one of the worst things that can happen. It really is, Bill. I mean, I was kind of talking about that as, as I lost contact with you, and it's it's really a a a job and a focus for everyone to kind of try to remain calm and understanding what the messaging is. So, it's really important for the governments and the different media outlets and things like that to try to stay on message, to stay on the correct and accurate messaging, and certainly the transparency. And I'll be the first person if this becomes a more dangerous microbe or a more dangerous issue that we we ramp that up and we get people prepared. But we don't want to do that from the get-go. We want to try to have the right information, the right preparation for kind of what to do. You basically are giving people a plan so that when it happens at the local and, and level, even in something like the Toronto thing that happened, so that there's more dissemination of correct information about what to do, uh, what you can do to prevent it, what are the best um, you know media outlets and reputable sources to monitor, and try to avoid that that black hole, that kind of going down that rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and other types of kind of panicked headlines. Well, we'll uh, stay in touch as, as this develops. And as you mentioned, it's not going away anytime soon. Doctor, it really very, isn't. very busy time. And I really do appreciate you taking the time for us today. Gre- greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Dr. Rodney Rohde, of course, from uh, uh, Texas State University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.